Dang, my clock, my little clock. Anybody know where the little clock is? Kept me on track. My pages are kind of thick today, so I need the clock. Okay, it's your fault. You misplaced my clock. No, I'm just kidding. How y'all feeling? You know, part of the, uh, I guess, the interesting dynamic about so many college, uh, a, a, such a thick college contingent is doing holidays. You can guarantee you're going to miss their presence. Uh, and so today as we uh, just continue to move forward, welcome. Can't wait for them to get back. Um, I just want to let you all know that um, we have the, um, the privilege of, in our generation, seeking to honor the Lord God like those, uh, well, the Bible would say, as my forefathers did. He said, I praise God. Paul said, I praise God with a clear conscience, like my forefathers did. It's the idea that we didn't pop up one day and like the way we do it better, so we decided, let's make a church and tell everybody who's been doing it, that's nice, but stand back and watch us. That's not what we're doing here. Some people actually bring youth here as though the youth are going to get something that's unfamiliar uh, when you look down the corridors of time backwards. And yet you come and you find, holy, holy is the Lord our God, is our anthem and our chant, because we've served God with a clear conscience like our forefathers did. And so we get here, and I think about how Corinthians says, you know, nobody can really participate in authentic praise. Now, anybody could read words on a screen. Anybody could rock to a track. But you, your heart can't chime in with the praise songs outside of the Holy Spirit. He says nobody says Jesus is Lord apart from the person of the Holy Spirit. And so as I was down there, like, getting rocked off of my ability to not just read words and just go along with the program, but my heart really is saying that, and, and, and I come from a contingent where you don't, you don't praise this God. You don't get excited about stuff you can't see. You don't get hype like you do at a concert uh, for this invisible God who supposedly did something for you. When I was just down there saying, Dag, Lord... Dad, we don't have the drums this week. We don't have the college aids this week. We didn't have the keyboard this week. But my heart still was like, whoa, that's right. That's true. Oh, man, how deep the Father's love. And so I always like to get excited at my ability to authentically praise regardless of the circumstances because I wasn't always this hype about God. I wasn't always this self-motivated when it came to God. And so many are proficient in the forms of worship, and at the same time, deficient in the authentic expression of worship. So many we know today know how to do it. The moment they come in the door, they know the protocol. But if God would appeal back their heart, nothing really is going on. And so, once again, if you, if something really is going on in there, never lose sight of the wonder of your ability to agree with what's on the screen and not just repeat what's on the screen. I pray that you're getting rocked. And if you don't really believe that stuff, um, that's probably because the light still isn't on. And so that's what we're going to pray that God does. Um, we're going through John. 
And um, that's, that's the other thing we, you know, until God gives us this, this building or some facility that he would like us to have, until he gives us track lights that have colors and uh, table system that we don't have to retweak every week, drums that don't have broken cymbals, uh, till God gives us uh, more comfortable chairs and uh, more aesthetics, um, we are leaning on the beauty of God's mindset being communicated as our key pillar and post. And even when God gives us all that stuff, that stuff won't be our pillar and our post. That stuff is really just going to be the little piece of parsley that they put on the edge of the plate to sort of garnish things, but it has nothing to do with the real meal. Talk back to me, y'all. Uh, anybody know the difference between the parsley and the broccoli? I mean, they look so similar, uh, but parsley is just the garnish. Broccoli is part of the entree. Um, lights, camera, and action is garnish. Sure. One. Um, um, but... The word of God, the mind of God is part of the entree. So join me for a meal. We're going through John. Our desire was to start our church plan off looking at probably one of the most familiar books in the Bible, the gospel according to John. Last week we got into um, a discussion about the woman at the well. But some of y'all are, are, are um, just joining us, so I'm going to back up just slightly. I'd like to talk to you today about something I titled, Don't Get It Twisted. Don't Get It Twisted. Hip-hop has this idea of, or the urban scene, you often hear people say, oh, don't get it twisted. And somehow what they're letting you know is the way you're thinking isn't proper. <laughs> you seem to be getting things twisted. You know, it reminds me of the old cassette tape. You know, I know we're in the, everything is MP3 and digital. Uh, but I remember the days of cassette tapes. Does anybody remember the cassette tape? Okay, talk back to me. All right. The cassette tape had a problem, though. No matter how much you tried to keep it on track, it would always get twisted. Inevitably, you'd be rocking to your jam, and then it would flip and be like, you was like, die, what happened? And then you look and you see a twist somewhere. But what happened is the cassette tape is so long, especially those 120-minute jaws. When you start unraveling the cassette, the, the tape, just to find where it's twisted, you found often that you had too much tape to work with. And before you know it, trying to fix a twist, you ended up getting more things twisted. Eventually, you have to throw it away or cut it and do something else and miss a whole portion of your cassette. You get twisted. Today I thought about how in a land of abundant options, in a land of theological views, in a land where we have so much going and so much to contend with, the emotions, the hormones, all this we have to work with, it's possible when it comes to the things of God to get things twisted. In fact, when it comes to something as fundamental as belief, we often get it twisted. John is come on the scene and as of chapter two, because John's purpose, say it in your heart. What is the purpose statement of John? Because we've been saying it every week. If your heart didn't say John's purpose is that we might believe in Jesus Christ and that by believing him, we have life in his name. 
then you're not listening. So this week, once again, John wrote the whole book. He differs from Matthew, Mark, and Luke on purpose because his idea is, I just want to highlight the aspects of Jesus Christ that provoke you to want to believe in him and then find life is in his name. Chapter 2, Jesus Christ, uh, I mean, John comes on the scene and he says, yo, there is a lot of people believing, though, but their belief Jesus Christ doesn't accept. Right after 2, verse 23 and 24, he says, now there was a man and he documents a man with a belief that was incomplete. Nicodemus, chapter 3. Nicodemus comes on the scene. He externally looks like the most likely qualified person to be in the kingdom. And Jesus says, cut the chit chat. You're not born again. Therefore, right now you're not in the kingdom. Next thing you know, chapter four, we jump to it's the opposite. The most unlikely person to get down with the kingdom. And we have a woman who's immoral, who's a social outcast. She's the woman at the well. Last week, we saw that providence moved Jesus toward his mission. Jesus didn't plan to go from where he was to where he was about to go and therefore have to go through Samaria. Providence works circumstances so that Jesus ends up having to go. However, because Jesus is mindful that he's always on mission, unlike the superstitious or the overly uh, strict Jews, rather than going the long way to avoid Samaria, which there was strife and beef and even this perception that the Samaritans were unclean, rather than doing that because Jesus is committed to mission, we saw that he crossed barriers, cultural, stereotypical, taboo barriers, just to stay on mission. We saw that his personal need, he was thirsty. The Bible, John, as a way to say, I know he's God, but he's also man. It's to highlight that he was weary. Man, omnipotent Jesus Christ. Weary and thirsty. He who is and provides the living water needs water. He says personal need got eclipsed because as he was asking for water, he meets somebody who needs his water. All of a sudden, talk about his drink dissipates and he starts talking about her need for a drink. We saw Jesus maneuvering from her, her tangents because she every time he started getting to the root of her need for him, she started coming up with theological questions like we do today. You're trying to get somebody just to see that they're a sinner and they start talking about, well, where do babies go when they die? And you're trying to reel them in like, oh, my goodness, what color was Jesus? How come all the pictures of Jesus are white? And you're like, wait, what does this have to do with the fact you were almost ready to admit you needed Jesus because you're a sinner? Now we're off here on predestination and election. <laughs> Jesus kept dealing with her tangents and reeled her back in the truth. Jesus' whole point was, you're so needy, and you're so empty, and I'm the only soul satisfier. I give you an internal pump. You don't have to make trips to the water fountain anymore. I'll, I'll, I know how to put inside of you a water fountain that pumps living, always satisfying soul satisfaction. John 7 is going to tell us that that water imagery is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the key to people having spiritual satisfaction simply because he's the only one who can make it so that God, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, is inside 
pumping you. I know a dude, some cats who have diabetes have to inject their cells. I know some people who are so dependent on the insulin, they leave it plugged up. They never have to inject their cells. It injects them because it stays plugged up. That's what he says. You won't have to take a drink anymore if you, if you come to me. I plug you right up. Come on, I, I'm telling you, E, we got to step up our preacheriness because that'll work, that'll preach. All right, so we're in chapter four, the woman at the well, the classic passage of the most needy person whose soul is empty. Keep this in the context of the block. Keep this in the context of your school. Keep this in the context of work. Because what Jesus does is give us a paradigm of what it's like to know Jesus Christ for yourself, but live in a land where people don't. To work with people who, out of all the stuff they have, they still show signs they're not satisfied. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well. You didn't have five husbands, plus you with a new dude, and he's not your husband. Remember, y'all, we live in a day and age where religion is abundant. She was up on her religion. She knew about the difference between which mountain you're supposed to, um, you're supposed to um, go on. She knew the historic connotation of whose well this was. Jacob, our father, this is his well. She knew about all of these things, but she was unsatisfied. We live in a day and age where people like church now. But they're unsatisfied. People know the routines of church, but they're unsatisfied. So don't think we're just waxing eloquent with an ancient script. This stuff is bullseye in the day we're in. Jesus Christ is a model of somebody who had everything going for him and yet chose mission over comfort, mission over self, mission over kicking the feet up, mission over making a couple extra dollars, mission over sitting on a throne prematurely. So with that being said, first we'd like to look at don't get it twisted. The spiritual trumps the physical. Or the personal. Let's read. We're starting with verse 27. Spiritual priorities should trump, should trump your personal plans. We're going to read verse 27 to 30 of chapter 4. It says here, just then, now remember, Jesus has just blown the, the, the woman at the well away with, she said, wait, I know when the Messiah comes. He's going to set everything straight. Jesus says, I'm the one you're looking for. Just then, verse 27, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the, her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever de did can this be the Christ? Stop right there. Spiritual priorities should trump your personal plans. Remember, Jesus started out looking for his personal thirst to be quenched, and the spiritual need made him forget about his thirst. 
Now look at the life of the Samaritan woman. Same thing. She journeyed all the way up there with the most critical need of water and then leaves her water pot when something spiritual comes in view. She says, I know I came here for water, but man, I might be on to Messiah. And she thought that enough to trump her journey for physical water. She leaves the water pot and dips. Look at the beauty of John letting you know this is a universal principle. Jesus let the spiritual need trump his personal agenda. Let me get some water. Now the woman is doing the same thing. You know when the spirit of God is at work because he heightens your ability to disregard your personal plans and to embrace even when it looks stupid. That hot, it was noon, they were all hot, and she, she traveled at least a half a mile to get the water. Why would you leave the water pot? She goes... She says, hey, everybody, now we already said that this woman is a social outcast, which is why she's drawing water at 12 noon by herself. The women usually drew water and they didn't draw it alone. They did it early in the morning with each other or later in the evening with each other. The only people who went high noon by themselves are people who were who have been banned from the normal social circle. Now she runs back to everybody. The same circle that doesn't mess with her on the norm, she goes back to them. And she says, hey, everybody, come and peep a man that told me my whole rundown. Everything I ever did, he told me. Come on, come and see him. This can't be Messiah, can it? We see in her life, her doing this. She says, yo, man, I met a dude that ran down. Now, me and um, Shy was talking about, what do you mean, here, come see a man that told me everything I ever did? Well, we don't believe that he just ran down every minute of her life. But he captured the highlights of her life in such a fashion. She said, this might be Messiah. Now, the Samaritan idea of Messiah is Tahib. Tahib wasn't a Messiah like the Jewish Messiah. The Jewish Messiah had a number of uh, images. W one of them was a conquering king. One of them was a spiritual restorer. One of them was a spiritual uh, upgrader, like a dude that comes and tweaks your theology. Well, for the Samaritans, they only knew of a Messiah who was coming to tell them what was the right answers, which is what she said. When Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. I know he's going to straighten up all of this mess and everything will be popping again. Well, in like manner, that's the reason why Jesus said, I'm Messiah. To say that to the Jews would immediately start a military hope that would mess up the smoothness of ministry. So he used to always tell people, don't tell people I'm the Messiah. Don't get them politically charged yet. Here he can do that. And then she can do that without making people say, yo, grab your gats, it's time. She goes and says, come, Tahib might be among us. Word, let's go. Because in verse 30 it says, all the people left. Look at that. Not only was her personal plans dropped for spiritual priority, even the people don't mess with her. Drop whatever they were doing at high noon and journeyed all the way to the well, which you don't do at high noon, just to see if Tahib was among them, Messiah was among them. I tell y'all, the spiritual trumps the physical. Spiritual priority should trump your personal plans.
we see it here. I want you to think back to when you encountered the Lord Jesus, if you ever did. What were you doing? I want you to go back, y'all. Some of y'all don't have to go that far back. Others of you are going to go back to your childhood days, and you're going to think back when, in your mind, you got saved. But just go back far enough to remember the day when whatever you were doing, you stopped doing, because in light of what God had made you aware of, that was no longer the thing to do anymore. The path changed. I think about that I can't, I was saved at four years old, believe I was saved because from four, I was in a dialogue with God, with sin as an issue, with the death of Christ as the thing that stuck out among all religious options. I clung to that. I grew up in it. People don't believe me. Then they saw Jeremiah at four do the same thing. Bring, by God's grace, Jeremiah at four, my son, uh, he, he comes and at four he was talking about sin and letting God down and the blood of Christ having to be his only hope. So you take it back. But that's not when my paths changed. I was four to 13 doing my own thing. Just how do you not go to hell? It wasn't until I was 19 years old that the satisfying nature of Jesus Christ became strong enough and beautiful enough for me to put the weed down. I was on my way to the weed spot, but Messiah. I was on my way to homegirl's crib, but Messiah. I was on my way to what y'all doing, breaking in cars? Bet. Think back. Have your personal plans ever been, not tweaked, not, okay, God, you can come along. That's what the world wants to do. Add Jesus to the mix. They want to they give him a bonus track. They want to do a spiritual song, too. Uh, uh, not, we want to do spiritual songs. We are, ah, we're doing godless songs, but we'll do a spiritual song too. These people didn't say, tell Tahib, come here, I'm fixing the sink. <laughs> and she didn't run off like, ah. oh, my fault, <laughs> I got her water pot. Uh, we're going to be back though. <laughs> and the Bible is full of these paradigms, remember, paradigmatic events, events that are a model of the way it should look. And in your life, if your life doesn't look like the stuff that he continually says it does, he says, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Moses was just doing his own thing, shepherd thing. He was not looking for God. He wasn't sitting out in the wilderness twiddling his thumbs. He wasn't like, when Tahib comes, well, for him it would be Messiah. I can't wait till Messiah comes. I know that there's going to be a Messiah. He was just shepherding, and God interrupted him through a burning bush. Path was no longer the same. Gideon was just hiding, threshing wheat. The angel of the Lord comes to him, path, no more the same. Their lives are totally Peter, James, and John upgraded to the New Testament. Fishing, just chilling. And then one day they dropped and stopped fishing. So much so that when they got weak, they went back to fishing, but they knew they weren't supposed to go back to fishing. Personal plans are supposed to change. Not only personal plans... But the spiritual appetite must dictate and dominate physical appetites. 
Let's read verse 31 to 33. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Somebody's laughing because they hear the humor. Like John is full of us not getting it. That's why you laugh, because that's us. Jesus is trying to rock us with truth, and we, I mean, we, we never are on the same page as him. Nicodemus, what, I'm supposed to go back in the womb? <laughs> like, that's worth a hee-hee-hee-hee. We need to record Nick's hee-hee-hee, and as we go through John, just play it. Every time we get to another person who missed the point. After Jesus kept talking about living water, living water in your soul, she says, all right, let me get some. <laughs> and now this one. I got food y'all don't know about. Hey, did somebody bring him something? <laughs> now, no doubt Jesus is hungry. His disciples have traveled a long way to hook him up with some grub. And then Jesus has this physical appetite, which is a legitimate appetite, but he's so caught up in the thing that God has him doing that he says, wait a minute, I don't need physical food right now. I got food that most cats are not up on. It's this idea that God has a resource and a filler that's not just bacon and eggs. It's this idea that the physical appetite isn't your only appetite. You've developed a hunger to see God lifted up, a hunger to see people get it, a hunger to see people connect with the God that made them, a hunger to see your friends come. If this is abnormal to you or you're like, yeah, but I wouldn't describe it as hunger. I just sort of wish they would. That's why God is saying that's us. We don't hunger for this stuff. We just sort of wish it would happen. Jesus said, I hunger for it. I'm so, I like, I, I want to see cats get it and I will leave my meals like Jeremiah, my son, ate again. He'll play and play and play at a cookout where there's so much food. I mean, people, we're forcing people to take some. Can you please take some home? Please don't leave that here. Can you get that slab of ribs? Who wants the corn on the cob? The mac and cheese. We'll get you a new tray. By the time, when we go home and then Jeremiah say, yo, I'm hungry. <laughs> well, look at him like, you're hungry. All that food. He was, like, ah. he was so caught up in what was fun to him that he didn't even have time to eat all the food that was before him. He says, can you imagine yourself so consumed by God's mission that when somebody says, but we got to eat. All right, but wait, I'm, we just get into the good part. But wait, you want us to pray during dinner time? Well, then don't eat. Just come on and pray. The block is hurting. Okay, bet. That ain't unreasonable. Physical appetites are dominated and dictated by spiritual appetites. Turn with me real quick to Deuteronomy 8. Because there's a reason why the phys God wants to train us to be spiritually appetized more than physically. Deuteronomy 8 real quick. 
Some of y'all who know the passage know where we're going. And you see, this is God's goal is to make us like Jesus Christ. You'll see how Jesus used this technique, not just here, but elsewhere. But start in Deuteronomy 8. Let's just look at verse uh, 3. I'm going to read a great chunk of it because it's beastie. Look, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So in order to surface your commitment level, look at verse 4. He humbled you, let you go hungry, fed you with manna which you didn't even know about, nor did your fathers know that he might make you to know, excuse me, make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes didn't wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. He says, yo, God has to train his people to operate on something other than physical pleasures and physical satisfactions. Look, but look, but look, skip down, uh, where we at? Um, um, skip down to 11, where he says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten physically and are full physically and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and your gold and your platinum is multiplied and all that is multiplied. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Turn back to John. If Jesus Christ doesn't teach us to be stimulated and motivated by spiritual appetite, there comes a time when you have to choose between the two and God will always lose. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8 when he was in the wilderness being tested of God to demonstrate Jesus Christ knows how to choose when he has to choose between a physical uh, appetite and a spiritual he was on a 40-day fast. There's a lot of reasons why he was fasting. But to break the fast would have dishonored God. And the Satan said, yo, you're the son of God. You've got the power to eat. Why don't you eat? Jesus says, well, the reason why I don't eat is because I got another thing fueling me right now. The, every word that proceeds out the mouth of God from Deuteronomy 8. Look at, you don't have to turn here. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Many walk of whom I often told you, and now even I'm crying about it. They're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. Physical appetite really becomes our God. And so God is saying, I got to teach you to not have your appetite as your God. I know it looks nice. Eve, the Bible says, saw it was good for food, and she ate. Samson in the Bible is documented as a dude who had an appetite for sexual pleasure and forfeited the ability to kill a thousand people, rip gate doors off, and to be the salvation of the Lord for people. All because he had a physical appetite that raged more than his spiritual appetite. Why did you choose the college you're at? 
Most people go to the campus and they want to make sure it's a nice campus and it's got green grass with a sprinkler system to make sure that that's going to be green all year round. Some people go and they like big dorms. Some people go because it's near. Then we live where we live because we have a physical appetite to have comfort in the best schools. And not dissing all of that. These are legitimate appetites. Just what happens when the mission of God calls for you to choose between being the best proximity to fulfill mission or feed the flesh that says, I need this kind of car or I need this kind of home or I need. It's not me. It's the text. So Jesus comes and blows his disciples away and says, I have food that y'all know not of. Spiritual priorities trumping his personal plans. Spiritual appetites dominating and dictating physical appetites, not eradicating. I'm not saying get rid of them, but this is what determines when you and how much and if you eat. And now whole spiritual agendas swallowing up personal agendas. We sort of said it before, but let's keep reading. Says here, Jesus said, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. He makes it clear, y'all, I'm a sent one and I feast off that. Let me run down these verses just so you can get rocked off. How much Jesus' sentness dominated him. Because that's us. Like, we make everything about what, like, did we want to. Like, well, you know, I was looking for a job. Okay, bet. Well, I just thought I needed a change of pace. Well, you know, I mean, well, it was just that the the property taxes were too much. Uh, Well, I mean, I graduated. I had to find it. Like, Jesus didn't say all, like, Jesus' life wasn't circumstantially driven. It was, I'm sent. 523, who who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. This is John. 530 of John. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 629. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. 638. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 718. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. There is no unrighteousness in him. 9-4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as day. Like, and that's when he's telling people who are slacking on the job. Come on, y'all. We got to work the works of him who sent me. While it's day. It's going to come a time when you can't work. 12-49, I didn't speak on my own initiative. The Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what, I sh- what to say and what to speak. People always act like it's us coming with this hard-to-bear stuff. Like I, didn't, I, like, I didn't make it up. I'm tell- like, I have this, like, I live my life. We live our lives as though we got it from somewhere. But not just we got it out of a hat. We got it from somewhere reliable, not just reliable, infallible, meaning perfect. This is why Jesus, when people didn't believe his his heavenly truth, he would say, look, I came from up there. Like you sitting here bugging. I just I came from where the truth comes from. I just left. 
Look at my baggage claim. But Jesus isn't the only one who sent. <laughs> he says, 718, Woo. as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world, praying for all of us. And he says, I don't ask just of the apostles alone, but for those who also believe in me through their words, 1720, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and I are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Come on. Come on. This is Jesus Christ. Not talking about the weather. Not. ah, Please don't hear me trying to mess up your lives. I'm talking about the beauty of what you see throughout the ages when you come to John 4. You can, you can pick out anything in John 4 you want. But I'm telling you that the dominating thing in John 4 is that some people have it all but have nothing. That's the you've got all these husbands and you've got a little chick on the I mean, dude on the side. You're still unsatisfied. And in the context of that kind of world, Jesus says, I'm thirsty, but if you're interested in the water that satisfies, forget my thirst. I want to go to Galilee, but if there's something going to pop off in Samaria, I'll stay in Samaria. That's the life that we're trying to see emulated in our generation. Missionaries have bought into this a long time ago. That's why we always talk about missionaries. What we don't talk about are people who never, who aren't missionaries, who live like they are no matter where they go, with this overriding sense of sentness. Every believer being sent. Every individual being sent. But then you link up with a clique or a crew of people, and together you all have a common sense of sentness. Because some of us, we like to chill and worship with people we're not sent with. I believe the greatest amount of effectiveness is when we celebrate truths. With the, so as an individual, I'm called to worship. But then the strength is in when I link up with other people. Not people that I really don't like. I'm just sort of doing it because we all like the preacher. Like I'm talking about... People who link up with people that they want to be sent with. God is with his sent ones. He has to, because look, sentness is always into crisis. It's always going to require sacrifice. It's always going to require spontaneity. We're going to see how Jesus is spontaneous. He's able, he's not so pent to his own thing that when something pops off, he can't drop something that makes perfect sense. Get on to Galilee. Go wherever you want to chill, Jesus. Keep it moving. You didn't already sow the seed. Let somebody come behind you. We're sent to the harvest. Look what he says. Let's read verse 35 to 37. He's, so look, um, 35, 37. So Jesus, well, let's just back up. 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, to telestai. Same word he said on the cross when he said, it is finished. He says, my, my food is to complete the work, not start and be like, all right, die, I got to go. Verse 35. Do you not say there were yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that they are white for harvest. 
Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Basically, this is what Jesus says. Okay, when the spiritual priorities trump your personal plans, you find yourself right in the midst of something where your spiritual appetite has to sustain you since your physical appetite may not be the thing sustaining you. Then he says, listen, your agenda, the reason why you don't count this robbery is because your agenda now is trumped by a spiritual agenda. You buy into that by God's spirit. You say, I don't mind that now. I'm not sulking. I'm not sitting over here with people that I'm stuck with to minister with because no this is now my agenda because what is the agenda verse 35 to 42 it's the agenda called the harvest so jesus has the harvest illustrated it's an illustration of how people know he says don't y'all even have a saying all right y'all four months and then harvest Man, during the season where you know you've sown your gear, you don't sow just the sow. You sow and then you go home and you be like, all right, bet. You set the calendar, you're ready for harvest. When harvest comes, you don't go out there and sow. You go out there and harvest. Jesus says, I don't want you to look at this as a time where we're waiting for harvest. Look up. Harvest is now. This is an era of harvest, Jesus is saying. He says, people have already been laying groundwork. John broke the ice. John's disciples broke the ice anyway. I know there was 400 silent years, the period between Malachi and the period between Matthew. He says, man, but God was doing stuff behind the scenes there. But then on the scene comes John and he's doing things. Sowing has already been happening. He says, I'm sending you to an age of harvest. Even if you're planting or you're watering, you're doing it not thinking because you never know what's going to happen. You're doing it because I know this is the era of harvest. Souls are ready. So the harvest is illustrated in verse 35 to 37. But the harvest is also, well, we're initiated into the harvest in verse 38. I sent you to reap. That for which you did not labor, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. It's this idea that all God's asking us to do is just join people who already been doing it. He ain't asking us to be new school. He's saying, yo, join the old school. There's nothing wrong with the old school laborers. Now, when you come in, you happen to have a new school sickle. That's what's up. Yo, y'all, mine got a new rubber grip on the hand. Yo, you ain't got a rubber grip? Nah, we have wood. Yo, yo, where'd you get that one? Mine is sliced on both edges. I mean, you know, you got new tools, but same motion, sickle. <laughs> grab that. Yeah, grab that. Harvest. Okay, let's keep moving. The harvest illustrated, 35 to 37, the harvest initiation is verse 38. Then let's look at the Samaritan harvest as an illustration of how booming it can be. Verse 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, aha, aha, it's no longer because of you. 
We believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Listen to this. As a result of Jesus' missional mindset, his prioritization of spiritual purpose, his being driven by not physical only but spiritual appetite, and his dedication to God's spiritual agenda, the Samaritans were harvested. And they came by testimony and then got it in with Jesus and were overwhelmingly convinced that the woman wasn't tripping, that Jesus Christ was indeed their Tahib or Messiah. But they didn't go just, he's Tahib. By the time Jesus got through with them, they said, this is the savior of the world. This cat ain't coming to just tell us all things. This cat is coming to wreck shop globally. I don't know what Jesus is combo because look, it says here, when they came, they asked him, stay with us two days. Look at that spontaneity. Jesus on mission. Hey, but I was just getting ready to, the disciples came back. We were, go- all right, back. Two days of him talking about his worldview. Samaritans were just as segregated as Israel. They just thought they were the right ones. They didn't say this is Tahib. They said, this is universal savior. That's what the harvest looks like. When whatever people wanted Jesus to be, it expands because they spend time with you and I on mission. And we, if we have to stay a couple days, stay a couple hours, put in a couple of tracks, open a couple of books, buy a couple of books, give somebody a little cup of coffee, go and sit and meet with them. All of a sudden we start breaking over God's salvation purposes globally. This is what sentness is about. The scene's going to shift. Let me hurry. That's why I need my clock. See, I didn't say let me hurry last week. Look at the scene shift real quick. Verse 43. After two days, so Jesus basically has stayed two days. After two days, he departed for Galilee. That's where he was going originally. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now I'm going to show you all what's so banging. I didn't understand how these two connected, but I'm going to show you all the beauty of how this connects. Remember, chapter 2, verse 23 and 24 introduces this idea. People see Jesus. They're wowed by Jesus. They believe in Jesus. Jesus says, eh, not the kind of belief I'm looking for. Keep that in mind. Nicodemus comes on the scene with all the trappings. Eh. The Samaritan woman comes to the scene with the opposite trappings. Hmm. Two days, bing, boom. Belief, the real kind, the kind that makes Jesus. Remember, chapter 24 said he they said they believed in him, but he didn't entrust himself to them. In other words, he didn't hang around for coffee to them. The Samaritan woman, immoral, outcast. uh, Two days with the village, he entrusted himself to them. That's the real belief. Now, here we go again. He's going back to Galilee. Now, chapter one, we talked about Jesus going to Galilee. 
where he did his first sign. Remember, he was a little irritated by being brought into something that really wasn't on his radar. That was his mom saying they run out of wine in Cana of Galilee. John puts us right back in Cana of Galilee. Right back in Cana of Galilee, we're going to see that. But first, he just says after the two days, Jesus has, and John puts a little note. Now watch the lack of honor in his hometown. Listen, watch how it connects. John says, watch out for the lack of honor. But then 45 says, so when he came to Galilee, everybody welcomed him. Yeah, it's Jesus. He's coming back. Come on, y'all. But it says here, they welcomed him having seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. See, they had gone to the feast. It shifts from Samaria to Galilee, from him being honored as Savior of the world to him just being a miracle worker, that John said, ah, see, it's never right in the hometown. And that's just a side note. Sometimes we like people who are from somewhere else. When they say it, it's gold. When somebody who's too close to it say, oh, it's just you. <laughs> pastor, pastor, so, pastor, so-and-so said, da 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 You mean the thing that I've been telling you every day? <laughs> Don't be silly. <laughs> like, I've been telling you that, though. <laughs> but the prophet never gets honor in his hometown. He moves back, and we're back in Jesus' hood. And the Galileans welcomed him. Jesus knows that this honor is not the honor he's looking for. Because they honor him, the Samaritans were engulfed in who he was. The Galileans were engulfed in what he does. One wanted him for his person, the other for his perks. So I'm going to run through the wanting Jesus for his perks versus wanting Jesus for his person, and then I'm going to close. Verse 43 to 50, don't get it twisted. The person of Christ outweighs the perks of Christ. Let's read it. We read, after the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself has testified, had testified, the prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in, in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast, 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, remember that? And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Then, excuse me, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. I'm going to show you how, how deep this is. Wanting Jesus for the perks. The scene has shifted for people who want Jesus for the person. Now we're back in Cana where everyone knows about Jesus' miracle power. It says here that immediately he gets to where he had already done a miracle that was bugging people out. And all of a sudden they're waiting for him to do another miracle. A, a, an official has a sick son. The, six, the official says, please heal my son. Sounds innocent. And it is. But Jesus looks at this person who's a Galilean and says, unless you, that's a plural you, unless you Galileans, unlike the Samaritans, 
see signs you won't believe. Won't believe what? Y'all won't believe in who I am. Y'all believe what I can do. Y'all won't believe in who I am. The Samaritans kept saying, could this be Messiah? Y'all just say, I wonder if he can do this too. Perks. Jesus coming off this high, back to sign-hungry, non-believing Galilee. And he says, I can do miracles and y'all still don't see what the miracle is pointing to. I'm here, y'all. The one who was promised, the one who satisfies, the one who can change things in your life. I'm here, but you just want a miracle. Galilee is not thinking him to be the Messiah. They're not rallying up people and saying, come see a man who sees my internals, tells me what I'm about, even exposes my sin, but can clean me. They don't believe in him as Messiah, that Messiah is among him, that living water is among him. They just are like, yo, bring your sick. He'll do something about it. But look at the difference. Jesus, the dude said, come down to Capernaum and heal. Jesus says, just go. He's, he, he, he's going to live. Like, take what you want. Here it is, what you came for. Get, he's going he's, he's, he's gonna to live. Remember the Samaritans? Stay with us. Okay. The Galileans, can you come and heal? Nah. But he's healed. But just go. But guess what? This man's faith upgrades. He moves from just digging the perks to being blown away and falling in love with the person. Look, let's close. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew what that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. Whole nother belief. It said he believed and went on his way. Now John highlights, and now he believes. And all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. His faith was upgraded, y'all, to the person. John wraps up a whole segment. Bugged out belief. I mean, sign, sign. All kinds of different beliefs, some beliefs that were authentic and Jesus gave himself to them, some belief that Jesus says, that's all right, I'll keep you at bay. And the question is, have you and I believed rightly about Jesus Christ? Are we into a person or do we just want a diploma, a nice house? A record to come out, a nice car, a mate. Jesus can give you all of those with a go. And there's your mate. Compliments of me. Or you and Jesus could roll down every block, every curb, every lawn, every school hall, every cubicle together with the perks 
but primarily you with the person. I'm going to close like this. Exodus 33, 1 to 4, and 14 to 17. And then Shalin is immediately going to come up here and close with something special. Matter of fact, turn with me there as we contemplate the person, not just the perks. Exodus 33. Exodus 33, uh, the Lord has just seen the golden calf incident at the foot of the mountain. I was weak last night because God is so up front. Let's start verse 33, chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land. You know, God always says, I brought them out of the land. God's, God is so humorous. In Haggai, God says, this people says, because at the time they were functioning like they weren't, hit, like God would normally say my people. Later on in Haggai, he switches it to my people. Here he says, take the people you brought up out of Egypt. One time, Billy Graham, sidebar, Billy Graham, some dude came into he was drunk. And Billy Graham, he said, hey, Billy Graham, I'm one of your disciples. And Billy Graham said, you must be because you're not one of Jesus's. And his whole point was looking like that. You're not imitating Jesus. You're imitating somebody as flawed as me. Same thing. It's like the humor. This must be your people that you brought up. It says, out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. God says, I will send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go get your land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The NES says, lest I destroy you on the way. Y'all going to mess around and make me hurt somebody on the way. I better send an angel escort. The way, because I'm telling y'all, when the people heard this, this is the living God talking, y'all. The people heard God say, I'm going to send the angel. Y'all go ahead, because I don't want to have to smash this people that you brought out. But I'm still going to give them the land. I'm still, it's still going to be flowing with milk and honey. The enemies will still be taken care of. Go have the stuff. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to this people, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Go down to 14. No, skip the 15. This is what Moses says in the reply to God saying, take my perks, but my presence won't be with you. Moses said, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. You might as well leave us then. 
Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? You bring the sun up on the just and the unjust. You raise up kings who don't know you and give them thrones. I don't just want a kingdom. I want you. You do stuff for everybody. It's in your being with me. It's you being my personal savior. If you walk in the block with me, it's me changing my direction for you. It's me and you having tea when none of my friends could make it, but I'm there at least with you in Starbucks. It's me and you. Okay, I'm not going to the movies tonight, but guess what? I'll go to the park because it's me and you. He says, but if you, if I can't chill with you any and everywhere with having intimate fellowship with you, then I might as well be like everybody else out here who reeks your goodness but doesn't have you. Moses said, uh, excuse me, yeah. And the Lord said, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have favor in my sight and I know you by name. Like, all right, I'm going to go with you because you my man, Moses. And I like that kind of carrying on. If you want heaven, what if God were to give you heaven minus him? Freedom from disease minus him. Record deal minus him. Your own real estate company minus him. Your own management company minus him. A billion dollars minus him. John comes on the scene and says, here's your mission, people. God is rocking people with an offer of himself. You can join God in offering people the key to them having God with them, not just a God who will do stuff for them. You have to first be into God for who God is himself. Love him. Be on mission. Link up with other people. Who, that's a narrow way. Don't think you can just go anywhere. It's, I just go anywhere because the spirit is everywhere. Yeah, but not everybody is on this mission. Link up with those people. Live that out. And then tell the world there's a soul satisfier. He can plug you up to perpetual satisfaction. It's possible to have his perks. It's better to have his person. God bless.